Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. and welcome back to the podcast um it is week two with our stand-in co-host it's your boy (laughs) um unfortunately Haley is still out and couldn't actually get home from Virginia for a while because she stuck there for 10 days because she got COVID while she was at home uh, going to a friend's wedding so, um, this week, again, we have Corey, and we're going to be talking about something else than what I had originally planned, but that is okay. I made it all work, so. You guys didn't send enough messages that you're tired of my voice already, <laughs> so here I am. So, here he is. Suckers. Um, What are we drinking today? We are drinking uh, a malt blended whiskey which i didn't know was a thing whiskey scotch mm-hmm. uh called shackleton yes so take it away from there you shackle file <laughs> so as y'all know on this podcast i am a big proponent of talking about shackleton everything about shackleton telling his story um So we got gifted this whiskey from friends that did not know my obsession with the story. And boy, did they get an earful. And it's not actually for me. It was for you. That's right. (laughs) But it's mine now. But she stole it. Um, So this is based on an antique blend of McKinley's uh, Rare Old Highland Malt Whiskey which was the spirit supplied to the 1907 British Antarctic expedition that um, was the first expedition that Shackleton led. So this was not the Imperial Trans-Antarctic expedition, which is the one we talk about in episodes three and four, where they're stuck out on the ice without a ship for months and months and months and months and make some truly heroic um, voyages across some of the most terrifying seas on the planet in order to get everybody rescued. But for once, everybody lived, which is not <laughs> common no. um, in these stories. Not so. even on like a normal voyage. No. So it's really cool. Um, they basically made the whiskey based on the um, whiskey that they brought. I'll read the excerpt on the back because it's pretty cool. Um, 
So in the early years of the 20th century, Sir Ernest Shackleton led one of the most famous expeditions to the Antarctic, overcoming tremendous obstacles to ensure all of his men return home safely. That expedition is one of the greatest stories of exploration and leadership in history and has inspired adventurers across the world ever since. Shackleton ordered 25 cases of McKinley's rare old Highland malt whiskey to take on his expedition of 1907. In 2007, 11 intact bottles containing this perfectly preserved whiskey were recovered from under the ice beneath Shackleton's base camp. This has inspired our master blender, Richard Patterson, to create the Shackleton whiskey as a personal and deeply felt project. He has combined the best Highland malt whiskeys, allowing them to marry over a long period to create an enigmatic blended malt with a dash of body and a a whisper of smoke. It has complex notes of vanilla, honey, and orchard fruits with real warmth and depth at its heart, like Shackleton himself. <laughs> a contribution from sales of this whiskey will be made to the Antarctic Heritage Trust. Um, this will support both the ongoing care of Shackleton's Antarctic base and the trust's mission to conserve, share, and encourage the spirit of exploration a spirit embodied by shackleton so it's pretty cool and the more you guys talk about it and link us to it maybe we can get funded <laughs> we, can, we can get them as a sponsor maybe not financially but they can send us a bottle please, so uh, please sponsor us please sponsor us with some booze you guys i'm obsessed i'm obsessed and it would like make me so very happy to be connected to this incredible human being um, but it is cool that we can drink basically the same whiskey they were drinking on the 1907 expedition. And that's pretty fucking cool. So cheers to that. Yeah. I need Ooh. to have had a couple more drinks in me before I drink it. Though. It's smoother than other scotches. Yes. And I'm also probably drinking it because of the namesake. But yes. me and scotch are not always the best of friends. No. That's more you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So how are you doing? How's life? Uh, I mean, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm recovering from that minor procedure that mm -hmm. I had. Yes. Uh, which is why we received the scotch. Which is why we received the scotch. Uh, going on week, starting week two of recovery. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I can actually get out there and start doing the harder parts of my job soon. Yes. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. But you can take it easy and it's okay. Yeah, it's, not, it's not really looking like it this week. You can take data and that's fine. I know. <laughs> I feel useful still at work. No, no. Well, that's good. I am nearing the last week of my fish project that I have going on. I have one more weekend of going to work both days on the weekend. Not all day, but still have to actually physically drive to work. And with the way gas prices are right now... Yeah, it jumped up another like 30 cents overnight. Yeah, I'm not feeling it. But anyway, so that's wrapping up, which is nice. And it's freaking hot, hotter than hell down here. But finally got your pool set up. I, so got, I got my pool set up. You were able to marinate today. I did marinate. It felt great. In the tepid tub. And yes, <laughs> it was kind of tepid. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, things are good. All right. Well... I was wondering if you might regale us today with your other story um, from your field experience. Which other one? The mud one. 
Oh, Lord. Okay. So one of the projects that we do is we set, well, I, I talked about this last week, the gill nets where we set nets uh, from the shore the night before, and then we pick them up the next morning after sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was towards the end of the season. Uh, the Again, I think the first year I was working here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we set, we set the evening and it went fine. But as soon as we got off the boat, we knew that there was a, a North front coming in. And if anyone knows about North fronts in Texas, it's like, it's like a freaking movie. Like the sky's it's black. So bizarre. You can look and you can actually see the wind, the wind wall coming. You can see all the vegetation, like all of a sudden go shoop, like flatten, flatten out like, <laughs> like towards you. And so I'm pulling, we're pulling the boat out and I look and I see, and, and, and the scrubland, the little bit of scrubland we have, I saw it coming. And I see the trees just start to like all of a sudden like bend at their base. And I yell to my partner who's on the boat, uh, you know, as I as I pull it out of the water, I yell at him. I was like, oh, get off the boat. And he just goes, oh, hell. And he jumps off uh, <laughs> and the wind hits and it actually rocks the boat in the cradle on the trailer, which is really kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, Considering those things weigh a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we got back and, you know, everything was fine. And we just kind of laughed about it. But then we go out there the next day and the wind calmed down a little bit, but it was now like a freezing cold wind. And this is, this was towards the end of the it was fall. In November. Yeah, it was in November. So it's like starting to get cold. It was in the 40s that day. And I remember yeah. because I went to work and our office had no power. Well, I just mean like in general, Texas is like just starting to drop down yeah. a few degrees yeah, by yeah. November. Yeah. Um, but we get out there and we can't launch out of the same ramp, which was right next to where we set the nets. Like we literally pull out of the ramp, we hang a left and we're at the first net. So instead, because the water was just blown out and it was just a mud puddle, we couldn't get out. That's something that happens a lot in Texas bays because they're so shallow. Especially our bay. Yeah, that when a north wind comes through, it literally pushes the water out out into the Gulf basically. And so like, it looks like there's like no water in the bay. It's really bizarre. So instead of being able to launch out of the convenient ramp, we had to hightail it back to, or we, we tried a couple different ramps, like getting further and further away from the nets. And then eventually we said, screw it. And we went to the turning basin, which is where all the big shrimping boats and a lot of like, kind of like the bigger shipping boats will uh, dock. And, uh, you know, we launch out of there and we go against this biting wind Um and and what should have only been like maybe a 15 minute drive took us almost 40 minutes to get to the net mm-hmm. uh and that's with getting stuck in the mud at the mouth of the bay um and then we get up there and we're still a couple hundred yards away from where the beginning of our net is and we bought a mountain mud and this is like this is like advanced mud like <laughs> we we i i stuck my leg in to see if there was any solidity at all that I could kind of like work my way towards the net. And I sank up to my chest and that was with me holding onto the boat. So I had to have my, my boat partner, he had to pull me back into the boat. And then we had to, with, with the big push pull we had, we had to pull our way back out because there was no way we were getting to the net from there. So then we had to go this time with the wind, but it was still freezing cold. And the waves were really high. Uh, so we had to go back, load up the boat again, 
and then drive to the first ramp that we tried. And then we just picked up the bin and we walked across cow pastures, duck and fences. I got caught by one of the barbed wire fences and I was screaming like, go on without me. They got me. <laughs> and my partner came, oh, I ain't going without you, Corey. And he actually does talk like that. Yeah, so he does talk like that. So um, you know. And so we, we managed to get to the net and we start pulling it in from the shore. So we're pulling, dragging it across like a loaded fish net or a net loaded with fish, dragging it in through mud. And so I go out to the opposite end, sinking up to my chest. And eventually I just start army crawling. Yeah, that's and all you can do. That's all you can do. I start army crawling, grabbing the anchor, throwing it as far as I can back towards shore, <laughs> army crawling to it, taking a break, chucking it. You know, meanwhile, dragging more and more net. And then my partner comes out and starts to help me. But he gets winded just as quickly as I do. And we're just sitting there. We're like, we have no idea how we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And then like uh, like something out of the Bible or out of like a storybook, a game warden appears. The game warden. On the bluff behind us. And he starts calling out if we need help. And it's a guy we've worked with quite a, quite a bit. And, you know, jokingly, he's like, hey, you guys got your fishing license? And my partner's like, oh, yeah, we're clear. And he's like, all right, well, I'll see you later. And I go, you know, I'm too tired to understand the joke at this point. <laughs> and I'm just like, wait. <laughs> and we get back to shore. We start talking to him. And he's like, well, I've got a toe strap. He's like, it might rip up your net, though. And I go, fuck the net. I don't care. <laughs> and just to let you know, building a net takes almost two days but to, it was like to build a net but it was like the, the very it was like the second to last like week like the very last week of the season i think it was second or, to last oh, okay because i think we had one more the next week yeah uh but so yeah he he tows the net all up the like a 20 foot bluff onto cow pasture so the cows are checking us out going like, what the hell and then uh we get there and it's so much easier to pull the net or pull the net or uh go through the net with it up on land and out of the mud i'm in a slightly better mood so no, it was it was miserable, and uh, my I, I think at that point I was still just the six month six month hire. Yes, you were. And yeah. so the game warden looks at me. He's like, he's like, hey, you you loving the job yet? And I go, I don't know. I'm actually kind of questioning this job. And <laughs> my partner goes, like, oh hell, this ain't the worst day we've ever had. And I looked at him and I was like, this isn't the worst day you've ever had. <laughs> and then. I wish that I wish I could say the story ended there. No, yeah. And so by then it's like two o'clock. We get back to the the building to like wash off the boat, wash ourselves off because we're caked in mud. And then we get the call that our other team in a different part of the bay was completely trapped and they couldn't get their motor down, their motor seized up, their boat was stranded. So they needed us to come and rescue them. So they were just floating out there. No, their 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 boat was uh in the, the mud their boat was in the mud on the shore tied yeah. up because they couldn't get out they and uh a game warden was able to get an airboat and was able to get them to the ramp at least so they could get into the car right so we had to go over we had to go up there launch our boat take them to their boat <laughs> tie up their boat tow their boat with our smaller boat because we couldn't get the motor down the 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 even the manual release pin was locked up like we, we ended up breaking screwdrivers trying to pop it open so we dragged that so that took about two hours to drag the boat back so i didn't get home i was supposed to be home by like noon noon yeah i don't think i got home to like nine o'clock that night yep i ended up with like a, a 16 hour day 
Meanwhile, I was at work with no power. There's nothing compared to your story, but to put the the front into perspective, um, I was at work without power in 40 degree weather, trying to keep the fish I had in the wet lab alive because I was one of my first rounds of fish from the study that I'm actually working on right now still um, to try to keep uh, oxygen on them uh, yeah. because all the power was out in the building. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting day. It was a rough day. I remember the front coming in because I was walking Marzi and um, I was like, I think we can beat it. Like I saw like the squall line on the distant in the distance. And I was like, I think we can beat it. It'll be fine. We did not. <laughs> it was terrifying. It literally just like <laughs> comes like it in you up. and like all of a sudden, you know, it's like pounding rain and Marzi is absolutely not happy. And I'm like yelling at her. I was like, run, Marzi, run. And she's like, fuck yeah, I'm not going to be <laughs> out here in this. Oh. She was a good girl, though. Yeah. She's a good girl. That's uh, that's probably your second worst story. No, that is my worst story. I would take the thunderstorm. Really? Yeah. Just because it was so much, it was so exhausting. Well, because because the thunderstorm, the thunderstorm ended out, ended better. <laughs> like if I got hit with lightning, I'd probably choose the mud, the mud apocalypse. Here's the thing. But the Metallica album was cooler. <laughs> Here's the thing about. Being a like coastal marine biologist that they don't tell you, like if you're an open ocean biologist, if you like study sharks and shit, like big cool shit, or you're out on the boat all the time, like out in the Gulf or on the ocean, like you won't experience this. But to all of us coastal estuarine folks, which is most of us, um, you will end up fucking in really deep mud at some point, struggling hard, hard, struggling just to move. probably multiple times yeah um and i don't like it because i am claustrophobic and i have issues with that um and we've talked about mud quite a bit on this podcast with um stories like the amir or mero tragedy stories like my mom uh falling into quicksand (laughs) um i have also had a couple of uh not close calls but not necessarily pleasant experiences like one time I got so deep in mud that I got water in my waders because yeah. I was crawling to get back to the boat. Yeah. That was not a good time. No. Um, if you get water in your waders and you're in deep water, you could potentially you drown. Could drown. So it's not... <laughs> um, but I was crawling and that's why I got <laughs> it in mud. <laughs> All right. Well, today I thought we could uh, go on a little safari. Ooh. I always joke that Corey is low-key a British safari gentleman sans the racism. (laughs) Um, Because, well, one, the scotch drinking. That's one, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Two, you have a very big collection of leather-bound books. Yes. Three, you have a decent collection of firearms. Yeah, that's growing. At this point. Um, And... In light of recent events, obviously, uh, that happened pretty close to us. Um, we do not, uh, we support, you know, gun regulation and all of that stuff. Oh, hell yeah. Um, we are not about, like, you know, right to bear arms, any arms, all arms, all the time. I don't I don't like the fact that it takes 20 minutes for me to get a gun. Yeah, that's... Like, I, I don't like that. That's kind of scary, but we do have some. Yeah. 
So, um, what else, what else do you do? Oh, you smoke cigars. Smoke cigars and, uh, tobacco pipes. So really all we need at this point the is shops. to get you like one of those dumb pith helmets. Yeah. And you'll be like. I need like one of those like wide, wide flared out yeah. shotgun, like yeah. elephant guns. Oh yeah. Um, and oh, your other, the other thing, your favorite Disney movie is the Jungle Book. Yeah. Which is a very British. Yeah. Cause it was, uh written by um kipling mm -hmm. who's such a fucking british safari bro like yeah like he is the british safari bro so i just thought that this would <laughs> kind of speak to you <laughs> you really just want to sit out there in a tent with a bunch of leather bound books and drink <laughs> i don't know that you actually would want to hunt any of the animals on the savannah i mean not not like any of the I don't want to like want to kill an elephant or a lion or anything like that, but yeah, like hunt maybe an antelope, like game game speed, yeah, like yeah, antelope or an something actu like that. actually eat it, yeah, yeah, yeah like a prey species, yeah, yeah, I do that. I think you're just too much of a biologist. Oh yeah, I mean, I would love to go on a safari and like see these animals. Yeah, absolutely. Like today, I was playing Red Dead Redemption, and I went through an area that I haven't been to in a long time, and I literally just found a bluff in the game and I just pulled out the binoculars and I just looked around like watch the deer <laughs> grazing watch the like pronghorns prancing around yeah I watched like a black bear go into a river yeah and then it caught my wind or caught my scent so then I had to book it <laughs> so even in even in video games in video game you're you know yeah well in African wild dogs are like one of your favorite oh animals. absolutely yeah like one of my dreams would be to uh, get a helicopter and fly over the savannah and watch a pack of them hunt. Yeah. Like that would be a uh, like make a wish thing for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, babe, let's go to let's go to Tanzania. Let's do that. Let's just uh, fly on over there. Why well, do I have a feeling after this story, I'm not going to want to. <laughs> this actually takes place in Kenya, which is next door to Tanzania, but it is. Uh, very much in that picturesque like when you imagine africa this is kind of what you imagine um, exactly exactly the lion king is what you imagine um so let's get into it i will put out a warning for this one there are and i usually do not talk about them but there are absolutely some gory details because I need you to understand what happened to these people. I typically try to stray away from over-describing things like that. Um, but in this case, there's a lot of um, writing about it. And so I thought we could talk about a couple of passages um, as we go along. So get ready. Bring it on. All right. So... Nature can be an unfeeling mother. We have discussed again and again on the show the uncertainty that lies in walking in the more desolate places of the world, the parts of the world where less humans dwell and survivors or victims are on their own if something goes wrong. But we haven't talked about the other living things that inhabit these remote regions, other animals, not human, and some, very few left in today's world, are known as apex predators. They're at the top of the food chain. 
And very few of these species are able to kill us, but they are out there. And under the right circumstances, they can knock us down the food chain a few pegs. It's one of the things that can still make the hair on the back of your neck rise when you hear a twig snap in the woods. It's primal and it's deep within our psyche. We can still be prey. Back in the days of the British Empire, the British were building a railway bridge for the British-Kenya-Uganda Railway through their stolen colonial territory over the Sabo River in 1898. They expected progress. They expected for their superior Britishness to surge through this wild part of the world, bringing light and knowledge in their wake. But the Savannah had other plans. When night fell, everyone was at the mercy of these apex predators, be it the white British overseers, the Indian skilled workers, or the native laborers. It was said of these predators that bones, flesh, skin, and blood, they devoured all and left not a trace behind. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this story takes place in the Savo and is a wild, a large wild savanna area in southeast Kenya that is drier and hotter than the more famous Serengeti, which is where most people go to have kind of like safari tourist experiences. Um, the area is local to the Kamba people, and it is called the Place of Slaughter which is actually in reference to the conflicts that have occurred in the area between like different tribes um, and not the violence that was to come. This region is now home to two large national parks, Savo East and West that straddle the Savo River and serve as important conservation areas for some of the last great megafauna on earth, the mammals of the African Savanna. So, you can see here we have the Savo West National Park and Savo East National Park, and they're mm. actually really, really big in comparison to some of the other like national parks that are nearby. So it's a very big area. This map down here is a map of the um, Uganda Railway that the British were building, basically to be able to ship goods from the coast um, in Mombasa all the way to Lake Victoria, where then they could take boats to different areas. Um, And the Savo region is like right here. So this kind of happened at the beginning of um, them building the railway. So the mammals that we're talking about today are lions. Savo lion prides are smaller than Serengeti prides with only 10 females and one male. Serengeti prides are usually larger with up to 20 females and several males to a group, but in Savo, male lions do not share power. They also have shorter or no manes, unlike the big, dark, thick manes that Serengeti lions have. And this is due to the fact that it is hotter and drier in Savo and a thick mane would be a detriment in the environment. Sava lions have been known, have been long known as man-eaters, and they still occasionally hunt humans to this day. 
It's thought that Sabo lions may have become accustomed to preying on humans after years of following Arab slave trains um, as they pass through the territory. Because the slave trains, if a slave died, they literally would just leave the body there. And so it was easy pickings for the lions after they died. Kind of horrific uh, human trafficking that is common in this area of the world, especially during this time period. So this predilection to human flesh, along with a lot of other factors, created the horrors that massacred dozens of people and terrorized a British uh, colonial work camp for months in 1989. So this is 1989. <laughs> that is not correct. 1889. 1889. <laughs> Was that what I said? <laughs> I do this all the time. It's my uh, dyslexia. Yeah. But actually, it's my dyslexia. <laughs> Maybe you should type out the dates in... 1989. <laughs> Like Stranger Things, <laughs> but like with man-eating lions. <laughs> so the Demogorgon, it's it's just a fucking lion. You just got some like stupid ass young kids riding around on bikes, and yeah. they see a lion, they're like, "Oh, it's an alien." I don't yeah, know. yeah. It's the Demogorgon. Oh God, <laughs> it's eating Kenny. <laughs> so, um, before we get into the story, we need to address the detriment that the British colonial empire was to Africa as well as large swaths of the world, including our own country. Um, because I feel like this whole story is kind of shrouded in that whole mythos. And we talked about the British safari gentleman, and I kind of joke about it with you because it's funny because you like old fashioned things. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, like, I feel like this period of time was, is, been highly romanticized by all kinds of different media um and people just because of you know the thought of like whoa exploration it's the the last great frontier like drinking a glass of sherry on an elephant (laughs) i mean like but you think about like movies like hell even tarzan like in disney that whole era is kind of glorified somewhat. I mean, Jane and her dad are part of that institution. Yeah, they were quote unquote studying gorillas, but like if that had been realistic, they would have been steal, uh, studying the gorillas post humusly. What, what is it? Oh, like when after they're dead. They're dead. Yeah. 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 So it's just like, you know, I just want to kind of address that and like yes i understand that the british empire was not great um right so due to their greed for resources control and homogeneity of the culture as well as the exploitation of those deemed less than the british empire rewrote the borders of the world in a way that has caused great conflict in africa and beyond because they drew the lines based on their territories and not based on tribal right political territory in addition, British colonialism and other European nations, let's be honest, not just the British, they just had the biggest one, 
um, not only supported and continued the African slave trade well into the 1800s, it's also exploited many Native peoples in this region as labor. And because of that, the suffering of colonialism in this part of the world and in many other parts of the world will always be felt um, long after these people have left. The story is told through the colonizer's lens, telling the tale of a heroic white hunter and his face off against these brutes, protecting the scared natives and the Indian workers. So as far as we know, not all of our perspectives are covered in the story. That's only because the only perspectives I have to work with are what's what is written. written and what's online. So that being said, what these people, British, Indian, and Native Kenyan encountered, I will say was something truly terrifying and primal. Mm -hmm. And that should not necessarily be taken away because no. I, I think I think every person involved in this uh event was like gonna shit their pants scared yeah. and you'll see why so i just wanted to preface with that <laughs> i'm absolutely also gonna read this guy's passages with a pompous british accent like with full mutton chop action yeah full mutton chop action for sure yeah yeah the weight of the helmet pre preventing you from being able to open your mouth exactly fully. <laughs> Too much scotch. Too much scotch. A cigar in your mouth. You want me to go get you one? No. <laughs> okay. Good. Thank you. So the railway project was intended to link, link Mombasa, Kenya to Lake Victoria in Uganda. It was created to make a trade route for the British Empire. Thousands of imported skilled Sikh laborers from Britain's uh, colonial India and local laborers were brought in to complete the project. Much of the construction passed through the Maasai tribal lands. And in 1895, there you go. I did it. 500 workers were killed for the rape of two Maasai girls, which, oh. like, holy shit. Um, so, the Maasai are a proud nomadic herding and warrior people who still rely on the savannas of Kenya today um, and actually have lots of run-ins with lions in the region. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's part of their uh, like, like uh, rite of passage is to hunt a lion, right? Mm -hmm. It's getting, and it's getting harder and harder for them to do that. Right. Because lions are protected. Dying off. Well, protected and also. Yeah. But what's cool is like conservation groups are actually working with the Maasai to like have them help conservation efforts to protect their tribal land mm -hmm. by turning it into a conservation. So it, which is a, a hard thing to change that kind of like tradition that people have held for thousands right. of years. So it's preventing them from being as nomadic as they used to be. Yeah. But if they have like land protected, then they would be able to still have like that nomadic aspect of their life, which is important. Right. Yeah. So many in Britain saw the project as a massive waste of money due to the complications and the lack of progress. And progress on the railroad was about to hit a massive challenge. So when Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson arrived to take command of the construction of the railway, within a few days, there were reports of missing workers already piling up on his desk. Within days, there were rumors of a pair of lions stalking the workers at night and dragging them away from their tents as they, as they slept. 
these lions were skilled at avoiding campfires, slipping through constructed barriers, and dragging men out of tents. It is pretty unusual for male lions to hunt together, especially in Sabo lion prides, because like I said, um, they usually have several females and only one male. So this was already strange. So these two lions were two males without manes. They knew this for sure and were unusually large. The lions were dubbed, and I love this, ghost and darkness, Mm -hmm. which is like the coolest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like creepiest name. Um, And the workers grew more and more terrified. A few of the Indian workers were certain that they were the angry spirits of dead native chiefs that had taken this form to protest the railway being built on their territory, which like, if I was seeing people getting dragged out of tents and eaten, I'd be like, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's an angry spirit. <laughs> um, the lions would break into a different camp each night, which would uh, make it difficult to hunt them. Um, and it was also hard to track them to their den as it was in a rocky area of the Savo and the trail of blood would be quickly lost in this terrain. So I'll show you. Uh, real quick so that's the railway uh-huh. pretty desolate area they're going through yeah also that's that's barely anything like, i feel like you could break down on that railroad so easily oh yeah and this is our main man uh okay. lieutenant colonel john henry patterson he kind of looks like a nazi he d- it's the pants i think it's and the boots no it's the jacket and the hat yeah for me yeah i the pants I fucking the pants look like that boy got thighs for days. Jodhpur pants are the funniest fucking uniform. They're those pants, they're riding pants, but they like have these huge like hips for some reason. And they look so stupid, but they're such like a quintessential, like a pop, 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 pop. <laughs> <laughs> like British fucking gentleman like yeah. look. Maybe it's the mustache. He kind of has a, oh, that too. a Hitler mustache. That doesn't, that doesn't help him. But like, take okay, take the little Nazi-ish vibe away, and like that is very like quintessential like British. Also, if he's British, wouldn't it be Lieutenant Colonel? You're right. It would be Lieutenant Colonel. That's right. Look, man, I'm used to American ranking. I don't know why. You know, <laughs> it's not like you have any experience in that. You didn't go to boot camp my dad is a retired colonel <laughs> in the uh, army so um so i wrote lieutenant instead of lieutenant but you're right it should be lieutenant mm-hmm. colonel you're correct well it's spelled the same way it's just said lieutenant which is like just just they they did that so because they were like mm, fuck the french that's literally why and oh. we did it because we were like oh fuck the french <laughs> <laughs> that's actually why and we say lieutenant and they say left in it. Yeah. We capital. Oh, we capital. Anyway. So here we're going to get into some nasty. So if you don't want to hear some details, like skip ahead, maybe 30 seconds. All right. Call me when you're done. <laughs> so Patterson wrote a book, uh, The Maneaters of Sabo, kind of documenting his whole experience with this. So he describes his first encounter with a victim in his book. Uh, the victim was a Sikh man, Ungan Sain? Sa- Singh. Singh. You're right, it's Singh. Who had been dragged off 
in the night. He wrote, on reaching the spot where the body had been devoured, a dreadful spectacle presented itself. The ground all around was covered in blood and morsels of flesh and bones, but the unfortunate, unfortunate Jamandar's head had been left intact, save for the holes made by the lion's tusks on seizing him and lay a short distance away from his other remains, the eyes staring wide open in a startled, horrified look in them. The place was considerably cut up, and on closer examination, we found that two lions had been there and had probably struggled for possession of the body. It was the most gruesome sight I had ever seen. We collected the remains as well as we could and heaped stones on them. The head with its fixed, terrified stare seeming to watch us all the time, for we did not bury, but, look, but took back to camp for identification before the medical officer. Thus occurred my first experience of man-eating lions, and I vowed there and then that I would spare no pains to rid the neighborhood of the brutes. First off, what a boring title, The Man-Eaters of Savo. Like, yeah. He yeah. could have been like struggling with ghosts and darkness. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like took me a minute and I already came up with a better <laughs> title. That guy probably worked on that book for like, what, 20 years? I don't know. It's not very long because I was able to, to read most of his accounts of this event. Yeah, but his brain was addled by the Savannah sun and whiskey. So, <laughs> I mean, agreed. But also like, whoo, that description is, is a rough time. Yeah. But that was like, that was normal. That was like a, a like daily occurrence. For a them. daily occurrence was yeah. seeing this kind of just awful so it's kind of like Jurassic Park, where it's like, the dinosaurs got out again. Huh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. Shit, okay. <laughs> what do well, we do? <laughs> let's keep making them. Let's keep, <laughs> let's keep building the railroad. What was this guy's name? It was something. Patterson? Oh, Henry Patterson. Okay. I was about to say, if the H stand for Hammond, that would have driven me nuts. Why? Because Hammond was the guy that did the first Jurassic Park. Oh, he no. was the yeah. Anyway, sorry. Sidebar. Yes, I'm very excited for the new movie coming out. Yes, we're gonna go see it. <laughs> I promised him, <laughs> which is why I thought you would enjoy this kind of oh yeah, no, enjoy story. Um, so a lot of different methods were used to dispel the lions, but none of them worked because these were smart motherfuckers. These methods included trying to ward the lions off with campfires and thorn fences and um, having workers sleep together in large numbers to like attempt the whole safety in numbers thing. But like they would still attack large groups because they didn't give a fuck. Uh, in addition, workers attempted to build lion proof huts. Um, they would put their shelters or beds like perched on top of water tanks, roofs, trees, girders. Um, or they would like dig pits inside their tents and like cover themselves with, like logs and leaves to try to hide from the predators that way. I'd rather, I think, be up in a tree than in a hole. No, I, that that's that's a like a lion pit. So they made pits to catch the lions. Well, they oh I thought they were digging pits and like getting oh, in them. Uh, or may, maybe they did that. Maybe did they they did that. But, but you're right. They may that, have done a, that that's too. That's a typical thing too. I mean, yeah. at least they do that in Asia and India to protect yeah. from lions or to try and trap or uh, tigers. Yeah. Tigers. Maybe I read that wrong. 
could be that like at the in, in the in front of the shelters as where the lines yeah. come in they put those because i was trap like them. i mean like if they w- weren't able to smell you like through the leaves and stuff then maybe you'd be okay but like if they got you in a hole right <laughs> you'd be screwed. yeah that's like that's that's dumb Look, I put the script together literally like two I'm not dissing the script. I'm just helping you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Um as a as a uh, uh a reborn or a resurrected uh safari. British safari man safari myself. Man. <laughs> uh Patterson also tried several methods. Uh like during the peaks of the attacks, he was out all night with his guns trying to catch a glimpse of the two big cats to take them down. And he would he would literally do this night after night after night. So he's like exhausted. So, you know, props to him for for putting in that. I will give that to him. Um, He would use goats as bait in order to like try to shoot the lions from a nearby tree. The man eaters would always attack in a different part of camp and uh, on the nights when he was out on the hunt to the point where like in his book, he's like, it's almost like they knew where I was. And they might have. They might have smelled him, you know. This this is fucking Jurassic Park. Because the lions don't <laughs> want to be fed. They want to hunt. Well, but they're eating the people. I know, but I'm saying like you like they they under it's like in Jurassic Park. They put out a goat to try and encourage the mm. T-Rex to come out. Mm-hmm. But the T-Rex doesn't want to be fed, it wants to hunt. Yeah. Well, also this is, this is fucking Jurassic Park right here. Maybe this is the inspiration, you know, a little bit. Maybe, maybe. Could be. Um, so Patterson also attempted to construct a lion trap, like kind of sounded like a big, you know, those raccoon traps that have like, they go in and the door closes mm-hmm. behind them kind of thing. It's like that. Um, and like pitching a tent over it mm-hmm. to trick the lions into thinking like that there were people inside. Um, but they never fell for that either. What if he did put a person inside? <laughs> like what better to bait than bait it with the thing they want? It's just a, a poor native worker. <laughs> no, he wasn't that cruel. So, <laughs> or so, so the story. So, so the that that's true. He did write it, so we don't actually. He know. probably was like, "Oh, let me edit that out." <laughs> it's gonna sound bad now that I'm thinking about it, sitting in my nice desk. I don't. I don't Maybe know. that's why his book was so short because they had to cut out all the yeah. sacrificial people he put in there. <laughs> God, it was actually like war and peace, but. Well, I don't know how the society ladies are going to take this, so I think we better edit it out. (laughs) Um, So there was a period of calm after the initial attacks. However, a few months later, the pair returned and attacked with increasing intensity. Because the lions hadn't attacked in a few months and the men had taken to sleeping outside on the ground to cool off. Um, that stopped quickly after the lions attacked a group of men that were sleeping and drug a man off right in front of them. Attacks were literally happening like every night after the lions came back the second time. Initially, only one lion would come into the camp to take a victim. Um, but as the months wore on, they became more brazen, both walking into camp together to hunt Um, The lions initially were also dragging their victims off to be devoured, but now they were eating their victims a mere 30 feet from the camps and in front of terrified workmen. So they were just like, fuck you. Yeah, right. And to put this in perspective, like Patterson was only like one of the few people actually actively hunting the lions. And these camps, it was like sprawling. Like the number of workers they had 
on this project was like huge. So they really could go like attack a different section of the camp. It's like they're going to different grocery stores based on. Yeah. They're like. How busy they were. I kind of feel like going to H-E-B today. (laughs) Kroger's a little slow on Sundays. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. We want to go to the Wigmans. (laughs) God, I love Wigmans. Piggly Um, Wiggly. The Piggly Wiggly. Piggly Wiggly. Oh, (laughs) no. So a few workers had some close calls, uh, but managed to survive to tell what it was like to be attacked by the lions. All right, this is going to be a fun name. A Greek con- contractor, Themistocles Papa Dimitrini. You handled that better than I thought you would. Thank you. Was sleeping in his tent one night when one of the lions broke in and took the man's mattress, likely thinking it was him, and disappeared out of the tent. <laughs> Grab the wrong thing. What if it wasn't even hungry and I was doing that just like to fuck with people? It's like you remember me forever and like ran away. It's like, you know, the other night when I broke into that guy's tent and ate him, I laid on that that like big pillow that they had. It's nice. It was, yeah, they were just they're furnishing their new apartment. They had a free, they had a free fucking buffet. Yeah, or buffet next to them. Might as well. I mean, he's not going to need it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Right. He's next. So, um, so he survived that. Uh, 14 Indian workers were sleeping in a tent together for the whole safety numbers thing when a lion broke through and managed to claw one man's shoulder, which, uh, ow, but instead of grabbing the man to run off with him, he accidentally grabbed a bag of rice. So they're getting dumber. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you make... Like, the more attempts you make, the, the more likely you're to screw up. Or make a mistake. Like, it's yeah. just basic statistics. Or they're just having fun. It, you know, maybe. I mean, they're literally getting a guy every, every single night. night. Yeah. So it's not like they need. Right. So maybe, you know, maybe they are just having fun. Um, I don't imagine these guys are, like, super plump and full of meat. I mean, they're eating somebody literally every. I, no, I mean, like the people they're eating probably aren't like super. Plump. That's true. That's true. Because most of them are, yes, uh, like the less, less fortunate, fortunate, basically. Yeah. Um, due to well, it was like s- slave work. Essentially, yeah. I mean, they were paying the Indian guys, but I don't know the skilled workers. Like but the natives mm, were probably conscripted. Right. I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure yeah. how that's. I mean, they may have been paid something meager or maybe paid in food, but it right. might not. It's probably thought but that could be why they had to get someone every night because there just wasn't a lot of meat right. on their bones. Well, and they're also big lions, yeah. too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so grabbed a bag of rice. When the lion left the tent, he realized his mistake and dropped it, disappointed, and then disappeared into a bush, which makes me think he was embarrassed, which I find kind of hilarious. (laughs) But meanwhile, like, this guy's shoulder got fucking ravaged. He survived it, but, like, ugh. Uh, Patterson himself had a close call as he headed to the good wagon one night with the camp's doctor, Dr. Brock, to get, like, supplies. And he said himself, like, this was a mistake. We should have gone sooner. Like, it was getting dark. So after they reached the wagon, they decided to hunker down there for the night when they heard, like, a heavy body jump on a nearby abandoned hut. And the two men noticed that the cattle 
on the wagon were restless. So Patterson and Dr. Brock got out of the wagon and lay on the ground. Um, They thought the lion was still in the hut, but instead the lion was stalking them. Uh, Suddenly the lion sprang at them and both he and Dr. Brock Brock shot at it. The lion was likely frightened and blinded by the gunshot and ran off. And later that morning they found Dr. Brock's bullet inches away from a paw print. So they had like just missed him essentially. Patterson was a skilled hunter and set about to dispatch the two man eaters once and for all. Uh, He had already been staying up late at night trying to catch the lions in the act and using goats as bait, but he was never lucky enough to see them. Like I said, they were always in a different part of camp. So Patterson described one of his late night hunting experiences in his book. Um, And once again, if you don't like gore, skip ahead, like, I don't know, 15 seconds. I have a very vivid recollection of one particular night when the brutes seized a man from the railway station and brought him close to my camp to devour. I could plainly hear them crunching the bones, and the sound of the dreadful purring filled the air and rang in my ears for days afterwards. The terrible thing was to feel so helpless. It was useless to attempt to go out, and of course the poor fellow was dead. And in addition, it was so pitch dark as to make it impossible to see anything. Thank you very much. Scene. Scene. And scene. Um, <laughs> but like the whole, I don't know, the crunching the bones yeah. thing, that made my, I mean, my spine like uncomfy. Uh, at this point, workers were fleeing from the project in fear. So bridge construction was put on hold while the remaining workers built even more reinforced huts. Uh, 20 armed men arrived to, um, hunt and kill the lions and help Patterson get the lion problem under control. Because like I said, at this point, he was pretty much the only person going after these guys. So on the 9th of December, 1898, 1989, (laughs) uh, Patterson finally got his chance during one of his late night hunts. He shot one of the lions in the leg, but it ran off and disappeared in the brush. The next morning, Patterson found a donkey carcass. I know. Corey loves donkeys, so I knew this would be tough for him. (laughs) So he found a donkey carcass that the lions had clearly been like eating on and decided to wait for the lions to come back and finish their meal. He had the workmen construct a platform to serve as a makeshift hunting hide. And sure enough, that night, the lion he had shot came back to that area. Patterson quickly realized, however, that the lion had spotted him and was now stalking him, circling closer and closer to his hide. Yes. Patterson, though, used this to his advantage, waiting for two hours for the lion to get close enough uh, for him to get a shot off in the dark. He describes in his book, The Experience. In a short while, I heard the lion begin to creep stealthily towards me. I could barely make out his form as he crouched among the whitish whitish undergrowth. But I saw enough for my purpose. And before he could come any nearer, I took careful aim and pulled the trigger. The sound of the shot was at once followed by a most terrific roar. And then 
I could hear him limping about in all directions. I was no longer able to see him. However, at his first bound, had taken him into the thick brush. But to make assurance doubly sure, I kept blazing away in the direction in which I heard him plunging about. At length came a series of nightly groans, gradually subsiding to the deep sighs, and finally ceasing altogether, and I felt convinced that one of the devils who had so long harried us would trouble us no more. Very good. Clap for me. That was amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Batterson found the body the following day, and it took eight men to carry the carcass back to the campsite. It was cheap. Uh, 2.95 meters, so almost three meters from nose to tail, which is nine feet, eight inches. That's a big mamma jamma. That's taller than me standing up with my arms out. Yes. With my arms up. Yeah. Like, that's that's a huge animal. That's a, that's a big fuck. So I'll show you. This is Patterson with the, like, most ridiculous mustache I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. Next to one of the... I think that is the lion, the first lion. Yeah. I mean, his head is like the size of his his, chest. Yeah, his torso. Like that. So that's one of the man eaters. So while the men at camp were thrilled with Patterson's success, there was still a man eater at large. The second lion made a move that night, attempting to grab the inspector, but instead made away with a goat at camp. So they are starting to get sloppy. Yeah. It's like a serial killer Mm -hmm. that's had too much success, you know, that's how they always get caught. Uh, Patterson set up again near the carcass. um, And that night he and his hunting assistant, a man named Mahina saw the second lion and he managed to shoot the lion, albeit not fatally. The two men began following the blood trail in the morning to no avail. Then there was no sign of the lion for 10 days following the event until December 27th when Patterson heard shouts from men nearby, a sure sign that a lion was attempting to catch another victim. Patterson decided to hold up, hole up in a tree with Mahina, but a venomous snake in the tree forced them to the ground. Then Patterson saw the lion stalking them from the ground which last time he had a lion stalking him, he at least was up in a fucking tree. Yeah, Like that's, oh. so yeah. uh, Patterson fired at the lion's chest, hearing a bullet strike the animal, but the lion disappeared again. So these things are also like low key invincible. They all, It's crazy that they seem to like know Patterson's hunting them. Yeah. And so they're like hunting him back. Yes. Maybe these guys are like reincarnated tribal chiefs. Cause they're like, yeah crazy intuitive right which is partially why the story is so compelling or maybe they're fullmender Ooh! shout out to uh the, the white, white vault. vault if you haven't listened to the white vault please do because it's, it's a really it's scary. a very it's a pretty good spooky kind of paranormal but also sci-fi but also sci-fi well and, and if you love pol- polar exploration like i do you're gonna love yeah. the white vault so anyway Shout out to the white vault. You don't need our help, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So as soon as daylight appeared over the horizon, Patterson and Mahina began to hunt the animal down with a native tracker and one of the guns they were using, because I thought you would 
care is a martini carbine rifle, which I don't know what that is. I don't either. I'll have to look that up. Okay. So they heard a growl in the bushes about a quarter of a mile into the bush and saw a the lion glaring at them like close range. Patterson fired and the lion sprang out at him charging. Patterson shot two more times and ran for that was all he could do at that point because Mahina had his carbine. One of the shots had broken the lion's leg, but even then Patterson barely had enough time to swing up into a tree before the lion got there. Patterson then grabbed the carbine from Mahina and shot the lion again. The lion lay motionless. But again, as they walked towards him, the lion scrambled up to charge. So he's like at six, I don't know, it's like four or five shots at this point, bullets. So it was, it took like two more final shots from the carbine in the chest and the head that finally killed him. Patterson also reported that the lion died like viciously chewing on a stick in its attempts to get to them. So he's still in like this crazed kind of state. Mm -hmm. So did you get any information? Because <laughs> I know you're more distracted by <laughs> No, I'm listening. <laughs> by the gun. <laughs> I have no idea what kind of caliber that weapon is. Well, I thought you would care, so I included it. Yeah. Anyway, so after this affair of killing the lions, um, and after the completed completion of the British Uganda Railway, Patterson went on to be a game warden in Kenya. The record following these events states that the lions killed and ate 28 Indian workers and, quote, an additional scores of unfortunate African natives of whom no official record was kept, which is so just fucking typical. Well, it's like eh, they weren't worth a damn. So yeah. we, we didn't try to pay attention. So this is why Patterson estimated as many as 135 deaths. Um, which we'll get into how many deaths um, they may have actually committed. Um, so let's get into kind of the science of uh, what might have actually been going on with these lions, because I don't want to like have this takeaway that like these lions were evil and, you know, just wanted to eat people. There was a lot of reasons why this might have actually happened. So the taxidermied lions are on display in the Mammals of Africa in the Rice Gallery of the Field Museum in Chicago today, which there they are. And they very much look like female lions because they don't have yeah, manes. Manes. Yeah. And without like the size comparison, like you, you don't really have an idea of the scale, of yeah. how big they are. Imagine it's different, like going and seeing yeah. them in person. Um, so Patterson offered the remains of the two lions to the museum for $5,000, which was a lot of money back then. Um, they're displayed in a natural diorama next to their skulls. So the big question on everyone's mind, both immediately following these events and now, was why did the Savo lion be lions become cereal man-eaters? I mean, they, they literally were cereal killers. Yeah. But like with pretty successful too like way more skills if you're normal human serial yeah. killer because they had like teeth and claws and shit um so most lions don't eat humans unless push so like in a starvation situation or they feel like they need to protect something or you know they're they're young and certainly don't usually develop like a serialized taste for it 
Um, so Bruce Patterson of no relation <laughs> to J.H. Patterson. Oh, funny. Um, as a scientist with the Field Museum began studying the Sava lion's remains, uh, he used the collagen and keratin from their bones and pelts and determined based on examination of the composition of the lion's bodies that they likely only killed 35 individuals, which is like, I don't even know how you do that. I should know. As a scientist, I should point out. Well, how often do you have to do that kind of research on like redfish and flounder? I mean, they're not usually. How many man-eating, <laughs> how man-eating redfish? That'd be a good movie though. The man-eating redfish. The man-eating redfish. <laughs> it's like, or just call it the redfish and it's like jumping out of the water and it's covered in blood. <laughs> I feel like the only way they would eat a person is if like a body got dumped. And, and like thrown like, to a wood chipper and then yeah, shot out into the water. Scavenged it. Yeah. yeah. So... That's considerably less than the 135 deaths that Patterson estimated. But to be fair, like Patterson was actually there. Yeah. So, but maybe he's over exaggerating for the sake of sensationalism, you know. Well, also, like how many of those natives like ran away in the middle of the night? True. And so True. they disappeared and were just assumed to be eaten. Right. They were just like, uh, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't getting paid hardly anything. So right. goodbye. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's interesting that now, you know, modern day science is reporting only 35 deaths. But so the other thing that I'm thinking too is like, I don't know what the time scale is on our ability to like determine this like that might have been like in the last couple months maybe because this was a nine-month period and you know your skin grows and falls out stuff like that i don't know i don't know i'm just thinking like uh, from a scientific but maybe they know something i don't know maybe (laughs) um so x-ray imaging of both of the lion's remains found that they both suffered from dental issues Um, So it was determined that their skulls resembled those of zoo lions, which eat soft food and don't crack bones. So one lion had severe root tip or severe root tip abscess in one canine tooth. It's thought the lions preyed on humans because they were easier to catch and chew than like cattle cattle or a gazelle. um, So this is... So that's the tooth with like the big abscess, yeah. abscess on it. And yeah. you can see here, like compared to like, that's supposed to be like, a, a yeah. canine right there. And it's like a big hole yeah. where the canine should be. And there's this like wearing down of the jaw bone as well. So they had like some fucky shit going on. Yeah. I mean, they were like hit like the hillbillies of like the line right the savannah has eyes yeah <laughs> um so in addition an outbreak of cattle plague occurred in 1898 leaving the lions already with no food source and well look at that there's a large camp of humans right. nearby let let me let me eat some of them so uh, also, the Sikh and Hindus um, working on the railway also had cremations of their dead, which could have triggered scavenging by the lions because it doesn't completely burn a human body. Like, there right. would be bones left. And so maybe they're trying to get at the marrow. Like, yeah. 
Um, in addition, Sob of Lions, meaning more than this, just this pair were already historically man-eaters. Like I said, the Sabo lions had been preying on humans from Arab slave trains as they died in route through the harsh Sabo region. So it's likely that the lions scavenged these bodies and may have developed a behavioral taste for humans like as an entire group. Mm -hmm. So in fact, Sabo lions are still known to grab a victim occasionally, even today. Um, so all of these factors together, like combined to produce these horrors that were the man eaters, but in reality, they were just sick lions who were like, well, this is easy prey. Right. And because they didn't really have a lot of retaliation, they grew bolder and bolder with each hunt, which makes sense. I mean, I think we see it as like, how could they do that? They're horrible. It's like, they're just trying to survive. Right. They're just trying to survive. Yeah. Like, I, I don't blame the lions. No. I don't blame the people who got eaten either. It's yeah, I, don't, just... I don't blame the people defending themselves from the lions and, like, shooting them because, you know, you got to protect your own, but... It's just a very unfortunate situation all around. So the reason I'm hesitant to tell stories like these, and this is kind of the first, like, uh, human versus predator yeah. uh, story we've told on the podcast. Especially, so yeah. Um, we've mentioned, like, you know polar bears and some of our polar stories but it's nothing close to this this is like these these guys have been like vilified like they were given names there's like a mythos behind them well i can't say that like if i was somebody in that camp you wouldn't either defenseless absolutely it'd be so scary yeah like i like love you know predators i find them so fascinating but like i recognize that they are predators i love nature but i respect its distance yeah <laughs> gotta pack the heat gotta, gotta pack, pack gotta bring the gun gotta gotta pack pack the heat gotta bring it bring a gun <laughs> um so yeah the reason i'm hesitant to tell stories like these is because these are the type of stories that cause people to grab their guns and go hunt down these apex predators out of fear or for trophies all these asshole dentists out here shooting lions yeah. and giraffes and shit for shits and giggles because they're like, well, I conquered a predator. Like, um, I want to stress that this was a very isolated case for like the amount of people that got eaten. Like, yeah. And the combination of all of these different factors led to these lions preying exclusively on humans first out of desperation and then like out of ease of access because like if you had like literally like cake show up every day next door to your house wouldn't you like keep taking those cakes or it's like when my boss keeps buying us donuts right it's like god damn it you eat the fucking donuts i eat eat a goddamn donut right um not to relate a human being to a donut but in this case or like pigs in a blanket Mm. oh my god little Mm. um so even Marzi didn't approve of that joke. Uh, I'm sorry. She's over here groaning at us. Uh, lions play an important role on this continent and more microscopically in this uh, Sabo, you know, ecosystem for thousands upon thousands of years. And like many of the remaining apex predators of this world, they're at risk of disappearing now because we've hunted down so many apex predators to make way for, you know, civilization. So lions regulate grazer populations, allowing for native grasses and plants to continue thriving, 
and allowing this whole ecosystem to exist for people to experience and live in for years to come. Like we talked about the Maasai. Conservation efforts at both Savo East and West National Park help protect the prides of this region. However, poaching, game hunting, and loss of habitat and resources can still decimate lion populations in and around the borders of this park. The story of the man-eaters is a cautionary tale. It reminds us that we are still a part of a greater food chain, still woven into the web of this planet, and so very much a part of ecology, even though we have built houses and cities to protect us. Uh, remember that we too are predators, and sometimes, though rarely, we are prey. Um, we are not the conquerors of this planet, even though we would like to think we are. We are still absolutely at the mercy of natural forces. Uh, the Sabo lions instead should remind us that we should be stewards of these ecosystems and learn to live alongside and protect these few remaining apex predators. So don't go out and shoot a lion because of the story. But holy shit, is this a crazy story? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, and all because no dental work. On the savannah. <laughs> Lions ain't got the dental. Yeah. They, they don't even got dental. <laughs> dental plan. Um, so that is the story of the Savo Lions. Ghost in Darkness. Ghost in Darkness, which is like the coolest. <laughs> Great, solid nicknames given to these guys. Mm. Um, so yeah, so after... That little story of blood and gore. Uh, let's bring it back up a little bit with uh, what are some of the happy things, a happy thing that happened to you this week or that you're looking forward to? I uh, finally own a Dremel tool. Yay! I've been wanting the, one of those for like a decade. Yeah, so what are you going to do with your Dremel tool? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I have one. I, and I'm so happy. I'm happy. For, I'm happy I could make that happen for you. <laughs> You're the catalyst that finally got, oh, uh, we went and saw the Bob's Burger movie. We did. And it was actually really cute. So it was really good that there was only like eight other people in the theater because we were giggling really freaking hard the whole damn time. We would have pissed off anyone around us. Yes. Uh, Bob's Burgers, I always joke, is the foundation of our relationship. Like we have seen every episode. I can't even tell you. I don't even know how many times. How many times, especially in like the first four seasons. Like like we've rewatched those. So many. so many times um but yeah like if you like bob's burgers like it was definitely it was definitely worth the money yeah. to go see yeah and I, we won't you know spoil anything but there is some true crime involved so yes so uh it's it's it gets a little dark it does get a little dark which i appreciate <laughs> yeah but because... it gets it gets deep um it does everything that they do really well in that show. It uh, yeah. It it, it ampl- uh, like amplifies like the fam- familial bonds and yeah. like looking out for each other and supporting each other and was, all that. It was really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Looking out for each other. Yeah. It was it was good. It was a good movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess my happy thing is that I got my pool set up. <laughs> Um, we, I bought that pool and I know I've talked about this before, but I bought the pool because, um, it was COVID and we were supposed to go to Maui and we couldn't go to Maui. And I was like, well, damn it. I want a pool to sit in. (laughs) 
in my yard because I can't go anywhere. So I bought an above ground pool. We set it up next in the, like the, the grassy alley next to our house where yep. people driving by the road would just slow down and stare at us as we're just chilling in yes. our pool. But now we have a nice private backyard. Yeah, so. now, now we're now we got a privacy fence. So and we're we're back in a tucked away neighborhood. Yeah, so. we got little palm trees in the yard. So it's actually quite nice back there. Yeah. Um, there's n- there's now a nice breeze and not like a freaking wind tunnel. Yes. Because <laughs> we're not right on the water that part of that bit that part of the bay yeah, yeah. so it'll be easier to keep the cover the on it like yeah. <laughs> um so yeah it was nice i sat back there today had a couple of little drinkies and that's what we did during the pandemic we when we got done working from home we would just go sit out in the pool and have a little cocktail hour because that was what kept us sane for those summer months yep um and that was probably one of the better like uh, splurge in the moment purchases I've made. Yeah, for me, I think back then it was uh, buying the brew, the brewing kit. Yes. Because I started brewing during COVID. Which we've started back up. Back up again, which our first one worked pretty well. Pretty well. And our second this, one. This one we did today. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah. It was kind of soupy. It was, uh, it was like gravy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, but yeah. Um, all right. So wrap this up so if you want to uh come see us come talk to us we are on twitter at mnwky podcast we are on instagram at mother nature will kill you podcast and this is where i post all of the pictures from the episode that i'm showing Corey. so you can also and probably post you know other ones too but so you can go through and and see um, all the pictures we talked about today. Um, we have a website, which is mother nature will kill you podcast.com. And we have a Gmail that you can email at mother nature will kill you podcast at gmail.com. So um, if you, Oh, and if you want to, <laughs> if you want to listen to us, you can go to Spotify, you can go to Apple podcasts, you can go to uh, anchor, you can go to, you know, pretty much any, uh, listening platform and you can also go to our website to listen to us as well we have all the episodes posted up there um so if you want to submit your own personal survival story like Corey did today by sitting here talking about it um you can submit on our website or to our gmail uh, we have a submission page on the website and you can just type it in and it goes off to our email or you can just email us directly. It does not have to be, you know, you surviving a lion attack night after night after night after night after night. Though if you have one of those, please let us know. Yes. <laughs> um, but it can be something simple uh, like getting stuck in the mud. <laughs> Or dodging lightning. Yes, or dodging lightning, or being on a sinking boat, or any of the other things we talked about. So it just has to be a situation where you felt uncomfy in nature <laughs> because of nature. Um, and then if you want to support the podcast, um, but you don't want to spend any money because we live in a capitalist hellscape, uh, you can uh, submit a five-star review on any of the listening platforms. Basically what this does is bump us up the algorithm. So hopefully we can get out to more people 
um, and have more people listening. So that is everything. Um, and so I guess we'll close out the podcast. Hopefully Haley will be back next week. She told me she shouldn't be, but <laughs> who knows <laughs> with that poor girl. She's had so many health problems in the last year. I, uh, I worry about her sometimes, <laughs> um, but she said she's up for it next week. So hopefully uh, we'll be getting Haley back. Um, but until then, stay safe. But most of all, stay curious, explorers. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.